Welcome to Firefly Chat, a monthly podcast aimed at shining a spotlight on Neiman Pick disease type C and other rare diseases that affect children and currently have no cure. You can download this podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or at fireflyfund.org. Be sure to follow Firefly Fund on social media, and if you like what you hear, give us a share. Good afternoon to our Malincrot team, Dr. Romano, Alyssa, and Sheila. Thank you for joining us this afternoon for the Firefly Chat. We are thrilled to have you and thrilled to talk to you about Adrobetadex. So if you don't mind telling us a little bit about yourselves uh, prior to your involvement with BTS 270, um, also referred to as Adrobetadex now, um, we'd love to get to know you a little bit before we start our conversation. And Alyssa, if you want to uh, start us out, that'd be great. Absolutely. Thank you, Pam and Chris, for having me here today. I'm I'm thrilled really to be joined by my colleagues, uh, Dr. Steve Romano and Sheila on behalf of Malincrot, so that we can share our experiences with the Firefly Fund and all of the broader listeners uh, uh, from the MPC community. So I, I do want to start by introducing myself. Um, you may know that I have been with Malincraft for a couple of years now. I run our global marketing group, which focuses on some of our later stage pipeline assets that the company is preparing for potential commercialization. And I, I actually came to Malincraft by way of Sucampo. Uh, which was a company that was running Adrobatedex, uh, the development program before Malincrot acquired Sucampo. But let me just first start by telling you a little bit about myself. I was born and raised in Silver Spring, Maryland. I have an identical twin sister and my mom and dad. So we led a pretty quiet childhood and I found my way uh, upstate New York for college, a small liberal arts school called Union College in Schenectady, New York. I had chosen actually political science as a major because I was convinced since about six years old that my pursuit in life was to be a lawyer, a medical malpractice lawyer to be specific. And I, I really uh, truly believe this is my calling. So I, I started my uh, educational career uh, pursuing the law. Um, however, at the time, witnessing my boyfriend, who I later married after college, go through law school, I was quite easily enticed away from uh, looking at studying the law and, and instead, my senior year, uh, chose to join the business world. And immediately after I graduated from uh, Union College, I joined a consulting firm at the time, was Anderson Consulting, now Accenture, and uh, moved to the big city, uh, down to New York City, and, and really shifted my focus to uh, to be that future businesswoman. And I spent a good portion of my earlier career at Accenture. Actually, if I think about it, it's about a decade and a quarter. Um, and I was uh, really a, a strategic consultant advising clients in a multitude of industries, including life sciences and pharmaceuticals. But about um, you know, 12, 13 years into that consulting career, traveling the world and working the typical 18-hour days, six days a week, I, I became pregnant with my first child, Alexandra, who is now 15 years old um, and quite grown up. And she was followed two years later by her brother, Jacob, who's now almost 13. So I was a, a busy consultant trying to be that businesswoman, mother of two toddlers, um, also at the same time dealing with my mother's uh, grave illness that had really snuck up on our family in the middle of nowhere. And all of this that was happening was kind of a bit of a perfect storm. And during that time, I, I found my way to uh, a biotechnology company in Maryland, uh, Metamune, which is now the biologics arm of AstraZeneca. And maybe it was that perfect storm opportunity. Maybe I was ripe for a change. But in the middle of all of that, working at Metamune at that time in our infectious disease franchise, I, I realized that biotech and, and pharmaceuticals and, and science is really where I ultimately belonged. And from that point, you know, it became far more than a career for me. And I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. So I left consulting, um, never looked back as much as I really did value uh, tremendously my career with Accenture and the time I spent there. But I, I've been in uh, pharma ever since, and, and that would include 
large pharma with AstraZeneca, also small biotech, uh, MedImmune I mentioned, and even some mid-sized companies along the way, rounding out my career actually with a regenerative medicine company a couple years um, between AstraZeneca and MedImmune. So all these experiences, uh, which I immensely enjoyed, I'm pretty certain um, I was always the poli-sci major, the only poli-sci major on all of the executives teams uh, within the the pharma and biotech uh, companies that I worked for. But uh, now almost a decade, another decade and a, a quarter later, here I am at, at Mallinckrodt, um, leading a team of incredibly passionate people in support of the Adrobated X program. So that is, uh, I, I hope, me in a nutshell, and uh, I'm happy to be here today. Wow. Thank you. What a background. Um, Sheila, would you like to go next and tell us a little bit um, more about yourself? Certainly. First of all, thank you, Pam and Chris, for this opportunity to share my background and passion in rare disease. I grew up in London, England. Uh, My parents emigrated from Ireland and I am the oldest of four siblings. Growing up in London, I loved everything American, including Elvis, but we did, after all, have the Beatles. I left college in London not knowing what to do with my life and joined a publishing company in the city. At the first opportunity, I came to America on holiday, where I was mesmerized by the American way of life. I had never seen such huge cars and skyscrapers. I was fascinated by the American culture and the language and how we can look at one thing and have two different terms for it. For example, you call shoes on your feet sneakers, whereas in England, we would call them plimsolls or trainers. I met my husband-to-be during this vacation, who asked me to marry him after knowing him only two short weeks. I had no intentions of getting married as I was only 20 years old and much too young. However, I went home after the vacation And Carl was very persistent, and I came back the following year, and I've never left America to live anywhere else. Unfortunately, Carl passed away four years ago of acute leukemia, 13 hours after diagnosis. I'm grateful that we have two wonderful daughters and a grandson, and today I hold dual citizenship. I joined a medical education company, and Pfizer was my first client where I worked in accredited medical education. In this role, I created and managed industry-sponsored satellite programs at major medical conventions. They still go on today. The drugs I worked on at that time were Diflucan and Zithromax, a familiar drug I'm sure to all of us commonly known as the ZPAC. This role led to other projects in rare disease at Wyeth and then Pfizer, particularly in hemophilia and rare cancers, where I was for 11 years. I joined Bayer in 2013, and I stayed for five years, launching a therapy for pulmonary hypertension in an advocacy role, and I continued to work in support of hemophilia. A little more than two years ago, I joined Mallinckrodt where I was introduced to Neiman Pick Type C and this wonderful community. Thank you so much, Sheila, for sharing um, a little bit about yourself. And Dr. Romano, if if you don't mind uh, going next and telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Thank you, first of all, for having us. Uh, My name, of course, is Steve Romano. I'm the the chief science officer here at Mallinckrodt. I've been here for about five years, and I oversee our science and technology organization. So, of course, that also includes the research and development group. On a more personal note, I'm from the New York City area. I was born in White Plains, which is just north of New York City. And then I was raised in Long Island, which is just east of New York City. Uh, In my early teens, though, my family picked up and moved out west or Midwest, I should say, to St. Louis. I was there for about close to 15 years. I went to college and medical school there. And then I returned to New York City to do my residency at Cornell, New York Hospital on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And I've since been a, a longtime resident of uh, the West Village, which is downtown. In fact, I've been in the same building for 30 years. Uh, I've been in the industry for over 25 years. I'm a psychiatrist by training and I started I'm a psychiatrist by training and I started my pharmaceutical career in the neurosciences. 
initially in uh, developing therapeutics for psychiatric and neurological conditions. Conditions such as, for instance, depression, schizophrenia. I worked in seizure disorders and various pain syndromes. So before coming to Mallinckrodt, I was head of uh, development at Pfizer for their innovative portfolio of medicines, and I oversaw a very diverse set of programs in uh, cardiovascular conditions, pain and inflammation, immunology, gastroenterology, and a number of other conditions. I've been involved with X though, since Mallinckrodt acquired uh, Sucampo several years ago. And in fact, it was immediately prior to the completion of the pivotal phase three registration trial for X. Uh, so my science and technology team have been since actively engaged in evaluating this very complex data set, uh, conducting substantial post hoc analyses, interacting with the FDA and other regulatory agencies, and working with the top experts in the field of, uh, of NPC, uh, all in an effort to see if we can identify the best way forward for this experimental medicine. So, of course, it's also been an opportunity for me to gain a much greater appreciation of the remarkable advocacy that exists uh, for this unique and in this unique and passionate community. So I, I'll, I'll pause there. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Steve. We're thrilled to have you with us this afternoon. You know, this is a question we, we often ask our guests. Um, you know, uh, being involved in rare disease is, is very different than, than treating other diseases, um, the larger variety like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. And we often find that the scientists, the CEOs, and the doctors that become exposed to rare disease uh, develop a passion for it. Um, have you developed a passion for rare disease? And when was that moment that your job became more than just the job? And see if you can start us off. Yeah, sure. So, so I have to admit that prior to joining Malacrot, uh, the majority of my experience was in, in drug development and industry in general has really been focused on therapeutic and disease areas that affect uh, more substantial numbers of people, such as depression, pain, inflammatory conditions, et cetera. Uh, but also hemophilia. I had a small uh, period of time where uh, following the acquisition of Wyeth, uh, I had hemophilia in my portfolio. So it gave me a, a glimpse into rarer conditions. Uh, but, you know, Mallinckrodt's focus over the past five or so years has been in the treatment of critical and severe patient populations, including certain orphan and rare diseases. But MPC is even more unique, as you guys know well. Uh, it's an ultra-rare disease, really moves you as a drug developer, very close to the small but passionate patient family and expert community in a way that really can't help but draw you in. I, I remember attending the Parsigian Conference in Tucson. This was shortly after Mallinckrodt actually acquired Adrobatidex. And it was the first time I had the opportunity to speak to the attendees and attempt to convince them and convey MNK's continued commitment to the program and also to finding a path forward, uh, a regulatory path forward for the drug, I quickly realized that I wasn't just addressing other researchers and experts, which is typically what you do when you go to a research meeting such as this, but I was talking to family members and patients, one of whom, in fact, was sitting right next to me in the audience. So following my talk, they turned to me and they personally thanked me. So that really was the first time that I had, uh, I realized that working in the rare disease space is very, very different. And often cases, you're on a, a named patient uh, sort of uh, interaction with, with folks with the condition, very, very different from so many areas. But it, it, it really does galvanize your, your engagement as a drug developer. And it did so, such for me. Uh, I often describe being in rare disease is a bit like being in a knife fight because it's, it, it's up close and personal. You know, it's not like you're calling in aerial bombing. It, it's, it, it's, it's a personal fight. You, you know people's names. Uh, Sheila, whoever wants to go next. Earlier in my career, I worked in more traditional disease states, you know, like cardiovascular, women's health and oncology. But it was my work in rare disease, especially NPC, that led to my motto, this is not just a job, it is my passion. My colleagues and friends have heard me say this many times. Patients and caregivers in more traditional disease states usually have a choice, a choice of therapies, a choice of clinicians, and an already developed community. This is not so in rare disease, and in MPC especially, where there is currently no approved therapy in the United States. Patients and families are in a battle every day to live as normal a life as possible. They just want to survive. Becoming a member of the NPC community is the most rewarding experience of my life. I want the patient and caregiver voice 
to be heard in all the work that we do on behalf of this community. I also recognize how difficult it is for siblings, especially for those who do not have NPC. Alyssa had made a comment recently about being on the front lines. And one of the biggest challenges from COVID is not connecting with families face to face. I miss the hugs and meals we've shared together and look forward to resuming these get-togethers when this public health crisis is over. Absolutely. And Sheila, it makes me, you know, it brings a, a tear to my eye and makes me get choked up thinking about that it was it was just a short uh, eight or nine months ago that you were here in Austin for a Firefly Fund um, event and we took you the next morning. Makes me upset but to see Abby in her gymnastics class. You know, she hasn't been able to really be back in gymnastics for very long. She just started back in the gym a few weeks ago, but, you know, she's been out of gymnastics essentially since you were you were last in Austin due to due to COVID. So we all look forward to being able to be together once again in person. That was such a rare treat for me, to be absolutely honest, to see Abby in her gymnastics class and then to have lunch with Belle um, and to listen to her and and just to have a conversation and just to have some fun times. Um, It was great. Yeah, I can't wait for it to happen again. Yeah. And both of the girls are doing, you know, really well. And obviously, um, we believe that um, it's because of Aggravated X. So, Um, exactly why we're here this afternoon. So Alyssa, if you want to go next, that'd be great. So thank you for the question. And I can say unequivocally in in just one word uh, with respect to my passion for the community, absolutely. Uh, Passion for rare disease, 100%, uh, especially based on my more recent experience with Adrobated X. But let me start a little bit earlier than that, because I, I think it's important to set the context when I think about where I spent the first part of my career mentioning, of course, that I was a consultant, um, I had spent so much time focusing on how I can help my clients be more successful. That was my job. I managed projects that helped solve complex business issues. I implemented systems and, and processes that improved business outcomes and, and efficiencies. And all of that was was fine. It was meaningful work. But every time I left a client site, regardless of in what industry, I always had this feeling of, of, I guess, unsatisfaction, dissatisfaction, like I was leaving something unfinished or that I somehow needed to find a bigger and better way to contribute as opposed to just doing something that perhaps impacted the top or the bottom line. And it always felt like something was missing until I was uh, exposed to the life sciences industry during my consulting years. And uh, at that point, had never truly known what it felt like to make a difference in people's lives. And so I uh, made my way, as I was explaining earlier, to Sue Campo in 2014. And uh, that was at the point in which uh, Adra Betadex was a potential opportunity and development program for the company. Prior to that, I had actually been exposed to several different uh, rare diseases and disorders and you know, spent my time both within large disease areas and smaller, more rare diseases. So I had really developed this very strong commercial background. Um, and for the majority of these diseases, I spent my time really looking at analytics and, and numbers and, and doing some market research. So I had opportunities to speak with patients and caregivers um, and physicians to really understand what they needed to address a disease or condition. So, you know, I, I felt like a lot of the work I did up front before coming to Campo was a little bit more back office, so to speak, uh, you know, crunching numbers and looking at disease incidence and prevalence and future market opportunity. And uh, when I started my work with Adra Betadex uh, while at Sucampo, which by the way, and I will slip every now and again, it will always be known to me as BTS 270. Uh, but at, at the time, feeling like I had been in a back office job for so long, never having gotten very close to, as as Sheila mentioned, the front lines where I could really affect change. That was completely different on the Adrobated X program. I found very quickly that I had to personally move out of my own comfort zone to the extent that it felt like this program was much, much bigger than just me, much, much bigger than just my job uh, that, you know, you could check in and out of every day. 
Uh, and, and if you know me, I actually never really check in or out of anything. I'm, I'm usually fully turned on, but it was, it was just so different with Adrobated X. Uh, when I think about what made it so different and why I felt so passionate about this program, I'm not even sure I can really put my finger on it. I think there are a lot of different things, so it's it's somewhat hard to nail down. You know, I, I I think about the fact that some of these patients are so incredibly young with with NPC and, and so delicate. Um, I'm a mother myself. I have a daughter, as I mentioned earlier, who's 15 and and has a suspicion of a genetic disorder, albeit quite manageable. So I, to some extent, live live some of that fear on a personal basis in, in my own life. And the fact that this disease, that NPC is inherited and can affect so many children in, in just one family before even the first child can get diagnosed, it, it, is, it, it really does truly um, make me step out of uh, the, the normal comfort zone that I'm in when, when trying to work and develop and, and progress a, a therapeutic for a certain disease. And I will share a story. When I was at Sucampo and, and Adrobated X came our way as a development opportunity, I actually sat down and, and Googled Neiman Pick Type C and the term child Alzheimer's had come up. And from that point on, I could tell you it, it um, changed me um, and continues to, to change me because there is no cure right now for this, for this disease. And I see the patients and the advocacy community fighting every single day to change the outcome for themselves and their loved ones and fight for those who can't fight for themselves uh, to find some treatment options for this disease. Well, we all feel very uh, grateful to have you, Alyssa. Um, so thank you for sharing a little bit about your your background and, and how you developed a passion for uh, working in, in rare disease. Um, Dr. Romano, can you can you talk to us a little bit about what interested um, Malincrot in becoming involved with NPC and how, how that happened? Sure, happy to. So as I mentioned earlier, Malincrot's strategy has been to focus in areas of unmet medical need, uh, particularly severe and critical conditions, uh, areas of, uh, you know, uh, such as uh, liver disease, burns, et cetera. Um, and uh, some of which are orphan or rare diseases. For example, we have a treatment, as I mentioned, that's effective in managing a rare pediatric form of epilepsy. And as I said, we are developing compounds for the treatment of uh, burns and, and the consequences, and they're rare consequences of advanced liver disease. Uh, so, so a condition such as MPC, though unique in many ways as an ultra-rare disease, is actually within our area of interest and expertise. Uh, we were also really intrigued, I was intrigued especially by the compelling preclinical data that's available in, in rodent and cat models. You know, in order to gain confidence in a particular mechanism of action, you really need to have evidence such as preclinical data and animal models that, uh, you know, gives you the confidence to move forward into an exploratory treatment into humans. So, so we were very intrigued by those data. And then, of course, the clinical data that was available. There was the data that was generated by the NIH trial. And, of course, there was some very good data that was generated through EAP programs, for instance, at, at Rush. You know, especially as the investigators followed these patients for longer and longer periods of time, it was very suggestive of an accumulating benefit, which was very in, uh, of great interest to us. So we really believe that Adrobated X could potentially be a transformative therapy for MPC. You know, in this, in this time of COVID, I hear a lot of people complaining about how long it takes for treatments to, for COVID to emerge. And, and, oh, my gosh, it's taking so long. It's taking months. But then I think about how long it takes to get treatments in rare disease. And and in particular, you know, if you, if you think about it, the, the first paper that was published about the use of cyclodextrin as a treatment for Neiman Pick was written by uh, Dr. Bob Erickson and Dr. Uh, Sherman Garber at the University of Arizona in 2001, which is like 20 years ago. And, and so 20 years have passed and we're still looking at cyclodextrin as a treatment for NPC. Um, why, in your opinion, has, uh, why has this journey with cyclodextrin been so long? 
Actually, it's not so unusual when you look at the typical period of time in which the industry sponsors are developing drugs for the market. In fact, I think most of us involved in our advocacy activities and in industry developing uh, developing drugs, the process to develop a drug and, and obtain regulatory approval is a pretty lengthy one. Uh, on average, it takes about 12 years or more to move a molecule through the development phase and approval process. And the success rate is actually very low. In fact, only about one out of 10 targets actually make their way out of the preclinical environment into the clinical environment. So in in rare disease, uh, the development time uh, it takes much longer uh, due to a number of factors, even if they are successful getting into the clinic. When you think about rare diseases and, and some of the differences with conditions that are not rare, you, you're looking at much smaller patient populations, uh, which makes it difficult to recruit and enroll studies, uh, especially those studies that are global. You also have uh, situations where the disease may not be well understood or characterized and Oftentimes, you see rates of progression and age of onset that is variable, and you don't have a good handle on all the known factors of the disease that can help inform uh, typical trial design uh, practices. You have patient populations that are also heterogeneous, uh, and all of this really makes it difficult to apply your typical clinical research study design standards and and practices. So it's really not uncommon for a compound to be studied for a rare disease over a long period of time and often a protracted development path. Um, And as I said before, many even never make it to the clinical setting. I do think cyclodextrin is actually fascinating in that uh, potentially it will be a future success story because the early research process for the drug went through more of an innovative path where it started with a collaboration between government and academia. And then later uh, it was joined by industry and advocacy. But cyclodextrin in particular leveraged this framework where you have public and private partners working together toward a common goal. So really from its early preclinical and clinical stages, cyclodextrin has been a nice example of how, you know, all these groups work together collaboratively with complementary strengths and expertise to advance development. I I do want to note, however, that over the past um, years and in the decades in which we've looked at characterizing better these these rare diseases, um, that we have gotten a lot better at accelerating our understanding of the genetic underpinnings and, and targets in rare disease. And they've, um, you know, we've become more specific and, and better able to characterize the, the drugs and, and the diseases themselves. So, you know, I think we can be more directive in our, in our discovery efforts and development efforts. And in the long run, um, I think it will have helped um, the path and, and in the future help accelerate the path towards um, regulatory approval and and the market for these drugs. Thank you for going through the history of uh, cyclodextrin, Alyssa. That was interesting to hear. And, you know, as parents of two daughters who have been on this um, medicine now for over four and a half years, okay, over four and a half years, Abby um, and Belle have been on cyclodextrin. And it, you know, it's not lost on me as their mom that four and a half years they've been taking this medicine and four and a half years later, you know, we were still um, talking, you know, with regulators about just how efficacious is this drug. And Abby has no symptoms and Belle is completely stabilized. And, you know, you can ask any one of her, you know, countless doctors or therapists or, you know, anybody involved in the girl's lives. And Abby remains uh, a zero on the NPC score um, and is active in ballet and gymnastics and, you know, with her peers, very neurotypical in first grade. Um, and it's just um, to us, we, you know, it, it can feel frustrating at time that regulators continue to need more data, more data, more data about the efficacy of this drug. And um, I just know, 
you know, based on the little clinical trial that's ongoing in our house, um, <laughs> you know, um, the, the conversation of efficacy seems like it's run its course because the girls are both doing so well. But I, I guess I also understand that that is anecdotal and that we have to do our due diligence and all of that to say we are so grateful to you all because you all have hung in there with this community and with this therapy for, with us so all the way. And we just, I can't express to you our gratitude for hanging in there with us. You know, our kids are really relying on this medicine and without your commitment to this community, I think we would just all be lost. So we are very grateful. Thank you, Pam. I just, I just want to quickly respond. Thank you very much. And, and I will say, you know, we all want to do right by cyclodextrin. We want to do right by Abby and Bell and all of the other patients and families. So, so thank you. And I, I hope we get that opportunity. Absolutely. Um, and Dr. Romano, the, the aggravated X trial that we have spoken about, and of course, our, as you know, our older daughter, Belle, participated in, the, in that trial. And um, those of us in the patient community that have been receiving aggravated X, like I, was, like I was just saying, for years, were really stunned by the results, essentially saying that neither the treated nor the placebo group experienced disease progression. And like I mentioned, this is not what I witness in my home every day in our own sort of mini trial that we're running. Um, for example, the trial had a rescue protocol. That is, if a patient in the placebo group experienced a drastic decline and they met the criteria, they would be removed from the placebo group and given the drug. We know that the rescue protocol was triggered several times during the trial. By definition, we know that some patients in the placebo group experienced a drastic decline. However, that data was not reflected in trial results. Why is that? Yeah, no, thank you for the question. Uh, we were definitely surprised ourselves uh, with uh, the VTS 301 trial results uh, and it reported on a number of variables that we think may have impacted those findings. Uh, but I do know there were a lot of questions about the patients in the trial who qualified for rescue and whether or not their data was used. You know, as we've discussed previously, there were four patients who qualified for rescue therapy, uh, two from the aggravated X group and two from the sham group. So these patients obviously did not have any week 52 data for the co-primaries, the MPCSS or the CGIC since they dropped out. So it is true that the original way we analyzed the data and accounted for these missing values in, the, in, in that manner, the two sham patients that qualified for rescue were not taken into account. Their data was not taken into account. However, this was fixed in a post hoc analysis, which included an alternate method of imputation that did take all of the patients who qualified for rescue into account. So the post hoc analysis that was done to replace the original analysis or add to it, I should say, uh, does give us a better understanding of the VTS 301 study results. Now, although not statistically significant, the findings from this additional analysis, which did account for both imputation and the variability factors in the pre-specified analysis that I referred to, showed a modest treatment effect favoring aggravated X for all the efficacy assessments. Now, naturally, we have more data than just 301. So aside from the study, uh, the registration intent study, there's a lot of observational data for aggravated X with long-term treatment. I mean, you just shared your review of some observational data in your own children. We're encouraged by other findings that are, include a recent analysis that matched patients who were treated with aggravated X with untreated patients in a natural history cohort. The results of that analysis revealed statistically significant effects in two endpoints the annualized percent change, and the change in the mean NPCSS five-item score in favor of aggravated X treatment over a 52-week period. So that's encouraging. The information from uh, Rush University Medical Center EAP also shows a benefit of aggravated X in patients treated for a number of years. So next steps. Right now, Malincrot clinical team, my team, is focused on the final analyses of the totality of the aggravated X clinical data in order to facilitate discussions with the regulatory agencies, which we hope will be much more productive. We plan to speak with the FDA in early 2021 and hopefully agree on a potential NDA submission. So before we go on to what the uh, what Malincrop is currently work on, working on, I wanted to uh, just ask your ask your opinion, Steve. With with uh, with these clinical trials in in rare disease and uh, this this idea of a rescue protocol being included in them, 
it, it seems like in the early days of, of bringing BTS to 70 that, you know, with all the anecdotal evidence that cyclodextrin and animal model showing that cyclodextrin was beneficial for NPC, it would have seemed almost impossible to have a trial without a rescue protocol because you, well, first, first of all, it would seem practically immoral given the, given the amount of data showing that it was beneficial. And secondly, nobody would have, nobody would have would have gotten into the trial unless there was a rescue protocol. Um, how, how, I mean, how do you get around this sort of dilemma like this when you're when you're doing a rare disease trial? Because I mean, there will be future rare disease trials that are going to be faced with the same dilemma. Yeah, is there a way around it? So, so I think you know you have to look at each condition in a different way. Uh, you have to understand the standard of care for managing those patients, and you have to understand what uh, rescue uh, treatment might be available um, and whether that has already come to the market and is proved or is just uh, simply, uh, you know, based on, on, on literature. So you're right. It's hard to get around that. It's also, though, hard, to your point, not to offer some type of rescue. So in other words, when you're doing a randomized control trial, as you well know, you've got the safety of patients in mind, top of mind. Uh, your expectation, obviously, is to demonstrate a benefit, or that's your hope, uh, but you also have to have your eye out for any uh, challenges that patients may have. And, and unfortunately, because you must remain blinded, you have to remain blinded in order not to bias your interpretation, you have to kind of err on the side of safety. And if you see someone not doing well, you try your best to design a trial with with the, the specific requirements for rescue. So you don't have everybody tripping a, a wire to, to, to jump out of the study for rescue therapy. But once patients actually cross that, that line, you do, in fact, for ethical reasons, need to offer them therapy. Now, having done that or having knowing that you have to do that, in small populations, you very often will have to do just what we've done here, which is to go back and look at the data in many different ways. It may not have been the a priori definition in your protocol for examining the data and analyzing the data, but in small populations where there's a risk of missing an efficacy uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, signal, you really do have to do your diligence afterwards and consider other methods for analyzing it so that you're, circ you're, you're really searching for the potential of a signal in all the noise. So yeah, you, you bring up a very interesting point. It's a challenging one. In small studies, of course, that's, that issue is magnified. In much larger studies, when you're looking at hundreds of patients, a small number of patients that need to drop for rescue purposes, it really is taken into account in your overall power assumptions for the study and, and rarely has a significant impact. But, but in a case like this, to your point, it can have a huge impact, but it's something we're going to have to, we, we simply have to manage. But I will say that, that, that should help us in our discussions with the agency. So when you are really looking for a signal in a rare population, you should have the latitude and the flexibility to look at your data in different ways, to interrogate the data as much as you can with, with reason and, and rationale, because obviously you've got patients here that are progressing, many of whom are going to progress to, uh, you know, to, to uh, degeneration and, and even death. And, and this is a serious condition. So you have to have that latitude. And that's what really we are working on with the agency is that flexibility to interpret the data we have and to evaluate the data based on a number of post hoc analyses that weren't necessarily part of the original protocol. Well, thank you for that answer. Um, let's talk about what's currently go going on. Uh, can can you clarify the difference between the Malincrod, the Malincrod clinical trial and the EAP? Could you provide us an update on both of those? Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So, you know, a clinical trial, as you know, seeks to answer a specific scientific question. Expanded access, on the other hand, allows for the compassionate use of an investigational product. So at this point, Malincrot believes that the objectives of the company-sponsored clinical studies have actually been met. So there really is no reason to continue those studies as they are. In fact, it would be essentially inappropriate. So there's no current scientific question that can be evaluated based on keeping patients in clinical trials. Now, that being said, obviously, we believe that patients with MPC have benefited 
from the treatment with aggravated dex. Uh, the family speak to that benefit, uh, you know, observation of the patient and, and everything we've talked about. So in recognition of this and until the product is actually uh, available, we, we really wish to make aggravated dex uh, available to the patients that are currently participating in a company-sponsored clinical study. Now, to help facilitate this process, we're actually going to partner with WEP Clinical. This is a company that specializes in setting up EAP and facilitating EAP and compassionate use programs. So while the actual establishment of an EAP can only be done by a requesting physician, Malincrot and WEP are going to work to get with uh, the sites and the site investigators to navigate the process and allow for a smooth transition of their patients. Every effort, as you can imagine, is going to be taken to avoid any disruption in the treatment during this transition. So we would encourage patients and families to, to talk to their study investigator about, about his or her plans to establish an EAP. And just to add to what Steve has mentioned about the EAP, it's very important that families discuss the next steps with their study investigators. In the event that a trial investigator is unable to establish an EAP, Patients may need to travel to another location to participate. We're working to ensure that families have the support they need should they incur additional travel expenses. So that, that thank you for that clarification, Sheila. Um, this question has come up in Texas um, about whether or not we were able to enroll new patients into the Malincrot, um EAP. So. Um, what you're saying is yes, depending on whether or not the PI for the EAP, the doctor, Dr. Gibson in this in this instance, um, is able or wants to enroll new patients. It would be up to him. That's correct. Okay. Okay. So, um, Alyssa and and Sheila, both this um, this question will be for for you guys. But uh, many people in the NPC community, actually, in most rare disease communities, experience. What, what, what I refer to as uh, the diagnostic uh, odyssey or diagnostic journey. For some families, it can take up to seven years uh, to be diagnosed. When I, when I talk uh, publicly about our diagnostic odyssey with Bell and mention the fact that um, it lasted a long time and that it was uh, two years um, that we were traveling for an answer, Many, many uh, doctors and um, rare disease clinicians have reminded me that two years is not um, a long time in the rare disease world. Um, seven years, eight years um, is actually how long the average family travels to get a diagnosis. What is the best strategy to ensure an early diagnosis in rare disease? Yeah, and, and I will reiterate what you mentioned about the diagnostic journey and the ability to diagnose patients early as critically important because I, I do truly believe that the, while the diagnosis of, of rare disorders has vastly improved over the past few decades and past few years especially, there's clearly still a lot of work that has to be done. And when I think about the patients and families who wait you know, over six or seven years, I'm sure your own personal experience, um, you know, suffering through symptoms on the part of Bell and Abby and watching them go through just the litany of doctor visits and tests and worsening symptoms can be unbearable. And as a community, as physicians, as, as an industry, I, I think we can do better. Uh, the best strategy um, to ensure early diagnosis or one of the best uh, for patients living with an autosomal recessive disorder that is inherited, whether they're symptomatic or not, is newborn screening. It's a critical element um, and a, a key to early diagnosis. Um, we know how to test for these conditions, most of them at the very least. And even though there are over 7,000 rare diseases, uh, we are familiar with enough of them and have characterized it that we can test and, and diagnose these patients earlier if we have access to methods to do so. Um, when we think about uh, the number of diseases that are included in the recommended universal screening panel, the, the latest number I heard was 35. Uh, NPC is not one of them at present time, is, as you know, just as well as I do. And um, you know, I, I do believe that's uh, why the work that the Firefly Fund is doing is so important, critically important, uh, so that, you know, in this case, MPC uh, can be part of the screening process for any newborn. 
by including it in the disease screening. And I think, Sheila, perhaps if, if you have a chance, you can expand upon what Malincrod is doing to support the newborn screening initiatives. And it might give a little bit more color in terms of how critically important Malincrop believes these efforts are, and especially for NPC to be part of that process. Absolutely, Alyssa. And that's why Malincrop is proud to be the founding and lead sponsor of Firefly's newborn screening registry program. I am a member of the registry working group, and it's been very rewarding to see the progress of initiatives like the Screen Plus pilot and I'm anxiously awaiting its launch when the first newborn will be screened for NPC in the world. Once we find that one baby, Firefly can start the process for NPC to be included in the RUSP, which is also the recommended uniform screening panel. Yes, she- Sheila, thank you for that. And I um, I don't think ever in my life will there be enough time in the day to thank you all enough for your commitment to Firefly's newborn screening initiative. Um, You all um, were our first um, corporate sponsor, uh, NPC industry sponsor of this work. And you, uh, to this day, remain um, our our largest uh, sponsor um, of this important work. And we, we, every day, we know that without your support, for the work that we're doing, um, we wouldn't be able to do this work. I think until we can get added to that list that you mentioned, Alyssa has only 35 diseases on it. Um, I think you know when when we're able to get added to that list um, and really capture our patients and know what our disease population looks like and understand more about the incidence and prevalence of the disease, I think then we will really be able to. Um, start, you know, moving this disease, if you will, into a new public health paradigm. But I think it's going to take um, really getting NPC on those newborn screening lists at the federal level, like you mentioned, the recommended uniform screening panel and on various state lists across the country. So without y'all support, we wouldn't be able to do that work. And we are we are so grateful um, for your support. So, Elisa, um, I'd like to ask you one um, one other question that we we try to end on when we're closing out um, some of our interviews for the podcast. And that is, um, how can families in the community best support Malincrod? And in, in other words, what I like to say is, how can we help you all help us? What can we do to help in the advancement of Adurbated X? Yeah. And, and let me start by saying, Pam, that, that we absolutely understand that the NPC families in the community want to share their stories and and have their voices heard. And, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your, your passion and commitment, of course. And I think one way that I'll mention that we can do this right now is uh, we have a, a survey that's actually just been released by the ERA Persigian Medical Research Fund. And it is for participation from uh, patients and caregivers. Uh, the survey in itself was actually designed so that we could collect information from, from families and, and caregivers of patients with NPC and better understand really what are your priorities and preferences uh, your needs to help advance disease awareness and better understand how to treat some of the elements of this disease um, from a patient and caregiver perspective. And it's it's just one example, the survey of an important way that we can hear your voice and the families can contribute to increasing our understanding of your treatment needs and priorities, and and also, of course, the opportunity for you to share your opinions and perspectives. I think the community is in a really important position right now uh, to help continue raising disease awareness for NPC, as well as the significant unmet needs for the disease in the United States, outside of the United States, and in Europe and in other countries. And I really, I hope that Malincrot um, has shown and will continue to show the community that we are very highly dedicated and committed to this community, uh, especially over the last several years so that we can help support disease awareness and disease education 
and really lend some volume to your voices. Uh, so uh, please, you know, look look forward to some opportunities coming up uh, in the future so that we can continue to hear your voices and better understand how collectively we can move the needle on helping to advance the disease education awareness and hopefully one day potentially the treatment of the disease. You know, I, I get choked up. Um, I'm a little bit of a, a crybaby when it comes to talking about NPC, obviously, because it affects my my two children, my only two children. Um, but this time of year in particular, you know, um, Abby is now the exact age that Belle was when Belle stopped walking. And Abby, you know, she is riding her bicycle, as I said, and doing very well in school and um, just a handful to keep up with in life as any neurotypical six-year-old would be. So it is an emotional time for us to see the difference in the trajectory of their lives because of this medicine. And um, it definitely gets us, you know, choked up. So in closing though, um, you know, is there any message uh, that you would want to give our listeners um, from the NPC community, um, Alyssa or Sheila or Dr. Romano, is there, there any one single message that you would want to leave, leave folks with this afternoon? I want to let you know that Malin Crod is, is exploring some more proactive ways to make sure that the lines of communication are always kept open with the community. And I'm just going to give you an example. We, we've been talking about actually establishing a microsite so that we can include periodic updates on the Adrobated X program, which I know everyone is always waiting with bated breath for. Um, so we are looking to be as proactive as we can and update the community real time with information that we're able to disclose as soon as it is ready to disclose. So you know, that is just a, a bit of, of news because I want to make sure that you understand how much your feedback and the community's input is welcome, is always welcome, and how much we appreciate all the feedback you've given us today and how you've uh, worked with us to make sure that we are doing the right thing by the community and and our patients. So thank you for that. And, and pass off to uh, Dr. Romano. Yeah. So, so I think Sheila, did you want to say something first before I do? I'd like to just say that on behalf of all my colleagues at Malincrop, I'd like to extend our thanks and gratitude to the entire global Neiman Pixie community for its continued partnership and its support of Malincrop and the Adrobated X Development Program. You are all very important to us. We look forward to continued engagement with the Firefly Fund and the many other national and international advocacy groups who work tirelessly to support NPC patients and their families. Here's looking forward to the end of COVID when we can all get back together again. Cheers. Yeah, and I think our, our final message today is really one of hope. Uh, we really remain hopeful that Adrobated X will one day be broadly available for the treatment of Neiman Pick Type C. And it's really that hope uh, for your children and for your families that drives us, even compels us uh, forward on this journey. So thank you so much for your support as well. Absolutely. Thank you guys for joining us today and for your continued support. It really means more than you'll, you'll probably ever truly know. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening and for helping us shine a light on NPC. We hope you will join us next month for another episode of Firefly Chat. Join the fly. You must give me stable lives.